The Story of Consuemheb Night had fallen, and the moon shone brightly across the desert. The air was cold and sharp. Two colossal statues of a dead pharaoh, intended as guards for a mortuary temple destroyed by an earthquake, gazed out across the sand and rock towards the river, the temple complex on the other side at Karnak, and beyond them the rising sun in the east. Three men hurried across the sands, scurrying underneath the enormous feet of the great statues. They headed towards the looming cliff face of the ancient necropolis, tools in hand, one pushing a large cart with a creaky wheel. I don't like this, this isn't right, the man pushing the cart, a short but stocky man with thick black hair, was grumbling. Shh, hissed a voice out of the night. It belonged to the leading man, a Nubian, whose dark black skin allowed him to merge into the shadows unless he was in direct moonlight, so it seemed as if his voice was coming out of the darkness itself. There's no one around, said the black-haired man defensively. Don't get cocky, muttered the third man, a muscular man with a big bushy beard. The three men slowed down as they passed the huge mortuary temple of the woman king Hatshepsut. Rows of strange square columns fronted with impassive statues of the god of death and mummification, Osiris, three terraces of them, loomed up over the men as they creaked their way across the sand. It was said that inside, many of the statues and portraits were worthless because her own son had destroyed them in his attempt to rub the woman king out of history after her death. "'Are we going in there?' asked the short man in horror. No, said the Nubian. We'll go for something smaller. We don't need that much. They carried on, skirting round the cliff face. Not far away was the mortuary temple of Pharaoh Mentehotep II, a rough pyramid rising out of rows of columns, sandstone statues of the king as Osiris lining the causeway leading into the temple. The Nubian led his companions around the king's temple to a smaller tomb chapel not far away. A large ramp led up to a much smaller columned façade and a wooden doorway leading into the cliff face. This one, he said. It's smaller, not built for a king, but it has rich goods in it nonetheless. This isn't right, repeated the short man in anguish, though he kept pushing the cart up the ramp towards the tomb chapel anyway. "'What else can we do?' said the man with the bushy beard. "'Whoever this was, he's had the use of this tomb for centuries. "'It's someone else's turn. "'Would you let our brother be buried in some hole in the ground, "'with no coffin, no grave goods, no spells to help him to the afterlife?' "'demanded the Nubian. "'Do you want the whole town to see that? "'Do you want his widow to have to live with that?' "'No,' muttered the short man quietly. Whoever this was, he was a rich man, and I'm sure he'll be fine, said the Nubian. Our brother has more need of this stuff than he does. Bushybeard took an axe out of the cart and set to breaking down the wooden door of the ancient tomb. Sand flew in the men's faces as he worked. The Nubian and the short man held lighted torches, the short man looking nervously around him all the time. Eventually the door gave way and the three scurried into the decorated chapel cut into the rock. 
Paintings around the walls showed scenes of sheep farming, flax picking, gardening and women weaving. Furniture stood around the edges of the room holding several treasures, peeking out of the shadows as the light of the torches reached them, including jars that the men hoped contained expensive oils and perfumes. Bushybeard and the Nubian nodded to each other, pulled out leather bags and started gathering together everything they could carry. Shorty harumphed uncomfortably once more, but then followed their example. Two small wooden doors led to two smaller chambers cut deep into the rock. The first was a treasury. The men's torches shone across a room stuffed with furniture, ornaments, jewellery, amulets and a couple of dozen wooden shabti dolls. These brightly painted wooden figurines showed people rowing across a river in a large boat, carrying offerings to the gods and to the dead, working in granaries, bakeries and breweries, weaving cloth and herding cattle. Look at this, said Bushybeard with a low whistle, holding out a phenomenally expensive ivory game board. That went in the cart, and so did everything else they could carry. When they had packed up all their plundered items, they headed back into the final room, the underground burial chamber itself. As they pushed open the ancient door, the torches flickered across two white eyes. They were painted on the side of the big wooden coffin that stood in the centre of the dark, musty room. Shorty flinched, but his companions pressed on into the room. The floor was rough and uneven, with a substantial section dropped away into a pile of rubble in one corner. It must have been damaged in the earthquake. The canopic jars holding the organs of the dead man were in a chest at the foot of the coffin. Their lids had simple human heads on them instead of the four sons of Horus the men were expecting, but they were exquisitely made and painted nonetheless. Surely we're not taking his organs, hissed Shorty in horror. Bushybeard shrugged. Can we afford to give our brother a number one type mummification, he said. No. But can we display these jars in his tomb so every workman in the village and his wife will think that we have? Shorty was silent, and Bushybeard and the Nubian picked up two canopic jars each and carried them out to the cart. Finally, there was nothing left but to deal with the coffin itself. Are we really going to take this man's coffin? whined Shorty. Shut up and help, or go away and leave us to it, exclaimed the Nubian in exasperation. Shorty shut up. The Nubian held the torches over the coffin, while the other two men slowly heaved the heavy lid off the top of it. Inside, the mummy lay on its right side, facing the eyes painted on the side of the coffin. There was no man-shaped coffin for him, just the big rectangular wooden box he had been laid in. The whole of the box coffin was covered in hieroglyphics, many of them the spells he needed to rise and find his way in the afterlife. Can we lift this? said Shorty nervously. Let's find out, said Bushybeard, reaching in to lift the mummy out of the coffin and deposit it on the floor of the chamber. Outside, dawn was coming. The Nubian left the torches by the cart so that all three men could lift the heavy lid first and then the main body of the coffin, and slowly, fumbling in the darkness and struggling with the weight, 
they hauled it out to the now full waiting cart. Once they had loaded up, they extinguished the torches, and all three helped to push the cart, hurrying across the rocks and sand of the desert before the world of the living began to wake up. The mummy lay forlornly, tipped onto its left side on the floor of the burial chamber, near the rubble of the earthquake. An ibis bird had flown up from the river and now perched on top of the columns that fronted the tomb chapel. As the sun rose, its form shimmered and, flickering in the changing light, it shifted into the form of a man. A man wearing an old-fashioned amulet and simple robes, watching the three looters sadly as they made their laborious escape from the city of the dead. Consuemheb, the high priest of Amun, was exploring the necropolis, choosing a site for his own tomb to be built. We'd recommend building well into the rock face, said Tambal, the Nubian workman from the workers' village who was consulting with him. More and more of the ancient tombs are being plundered and looted. If you want to remain safe and secure, and your grave goods with you, build something hard to find, without too grand an entrance. Consuemheb nodded. He had been to a few funerals where the coffin of the dead man or woman was suspiciously old-fashioned, and more than a few workmen and their families had experienced a sudden and inexplicable windfall of expensive, also old-fashioned, jewellery and amulets. Having narrowed his choices down to a couple of sites in a valley adjacent to the newer royal tombs, Consuemheb dismissed Tambal so he could think about his options. One site was smaller, but better hidden from potential looters, his other favourite was larger, but a little more exposed. Hoping to clear his mind a little, Consuemheb went for a walk around the necropolis. He found his feet taking him towards the oldest part of Deir el-Bari, the great mortuary temples of the ancient pharaohs. It was a clear, bright day, the heat of the sun on the desert sand giving the air a feeling of cleanliness and freshness. But it was coming to the hottest part of the day, and Consuemheb could not walk much further. He made his way to one of the ancient tombs, a small outside portico at the top of a long ramp leading to a tomb cut into the cliff face. Slowly, moving carefully in the heat, he climbed the ramp to sit in the shade of the portico. "'Peace be with you, friend,' said a voice. Consuemheb jumped up in fright, in this hottest part of the day, when all sensible men were inside, he could see no one but himself for miles around. Hello, he said in confusion, looking around him. As he shifted his gaze to the ramp, the hot air in front of him shimmered, and a figure flickered in and out of his view. One minute it was a sacred ibis bird, the next the figure of a man, then nothing at all but the illusions of the wavering hot air. After a minute or two, though, the figure resolved itself into the shape of a man wearing a simple, old-fashioned robe and an old-fashioned amulet. "'Peace be with you, friend,' said the man again. "'Peace be with you, friend,' replied Consuemheb in confusion. "'I am come to beg your help, High Priest of Amun,' said the man. Consuemheb almost asked how he knew who he was, but decided questioning any part of this encounter too much would only make him more confused. So instead, he said, 
How can I help you, my son? The man looked about his age or older, but he felt he should approach him with a suitably priestly tone if he was asking for help. This is my tomb, said the man, gesturing towards the tomb behind Consuemheb. He paused for a moment while the high priest took this in. Consuemheb rubbed his head with the back of his hand. How do I know, he said slowly, that I am really seeing you? I have foolishly set out for a walk in the hottest part of the day. You could be a trick of the light or a fever dream. I have probably called you up from my own imagination. The figure in front of him looked crestfallen, but rallied quickly. I swear I am not a figment of your imagination or anyone else's, he said. Go home, rest, drink water, and call for me again in the cool of the night, and I will come to you and prove I am no midday illusion. Please, I need your help. Consuemheb nodded, and the figure once more shimmered and flickered, switching between the forms of man and ibis bird before disappearing. That evening, back in his own home, well-rested and well-watered, Consuemheb prepared some offerings and went up to the roof of his own house. There he invoked the gods of the sky and the gods of the land, southern, northern, western and eastern, and the gods of the necropolis. Making his offerings to them, he said, "'Send me, O gods, that august spirit that visited me at the necropolis this afternoon.'" Once again the air shimmered, though it was now evening and the air was cool and no longer full of waves of heat. Once again a form flickered in the air in front of him between ibis bird and man before settling on the shape of a man. "'I am here, friend,' he said. "'I am real and I need your help. "'My tomb has been wrecked by earthquakes and plundered by men "'and my body lies abandoned on the floor of my own burial chamber.' I cannot eat or drink, I cannot walk in the sunlight, I am left in cold and darkness. Consuemheb felt his eyes fill with tears. Who are you, he said. Tell me your name and your father's and mother's names and I will recover your body and find you a new resting place. I am Nebusimek, said the man. My father was called Ankmen and my mother was Yotiemshas. In life, I was overseer of the treasury of the great king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Mentuhotep, may he live long and prosper, and I was also a leader of his armies. An earthquake partially destroyed my tomb, and then, a year ago, it was plundered and looted, and I was left lying on the ruined floor, naked and unprotected. My coffin was stolen and all the spells I needed to raise me in the afterlife taken away. Four times I have appeared to living men to beg them to help me. Four times I have been promised a new tomb, but nothing has come of it. I'm sorry, my friend, said Consuemheb. Times are hard. Men can barely afford to bury themselves and their families, never mind a stranger from hundreds of years ago. But you, you are the high priest of our moon, cried the man. Surely you can help me. Consuemheb smiled through his tears, feeling so much for this poor spirit. Yes, I can help you, he said. I will have five manservants and five maidservants pour libations for you, and I will have sacks of Emma offered for you daily. And I will provide for you a new tomb, with a new coffin made of gold and Sisyphus wood. 
I pray that you are honest and that it will be done, said the figure of Nebusamek sadly, for I cannot endure this hunger and darkness much longer. It will be done, said Conswemheb, as the figure once more flickered and wavered before him and disappeared. How can it be done? demanded Tambal, the workman's leader, when Conswemheb approached him. The cost would be enormous. Understanding that cost may be no object, he added hastily, remembering who he was talking to and bowing to the high priest. But the time and the space as well, the effort it will take to carve out a whole new tomb from the rock face. Perhaps the body could be restored to a new coffin in its own tomb. The tomb has been wrecked by earthquake as well as looted, said Conswemheb. I don't want to risk it. A fresh new tomb will be better. Well, I can cost it out, said Tambal, but it will not be easy. He looked down at his plans, almost guiltily it seemed, though Conswemheb could not imagine why he would feel personally guilty about the situation. All that day Conswemheb wrestled with his conscience, should he spend such a great amount of the treasury's money to help this spirit? Or abandon the poor man again, another broken promise? Eventually he brought the subject up to his wife, Ankeri. Will there be enough left for my tomb? she asked, sounding worried. Ankeri! What a selfish question! cried Conswemheb. Selfish? You are so concerned to protect this dead man from the cold and the darkness. What about me? she replied. Conswemheb realised she had a point, though he was reluctant to admit it. "'I was thinking we could be buried together,' he said. "'We could have a mortuary complex cut into the rock, "'and we could have a chamber each and share a tomb. "'That way some of our treasure and shabtis, as well as the complex itself, "'would all be shared.' "'That's a good idea,' said Ankeri, mollified. "'And it would be nice to spend eternity together.' She was quiet for a moment. Perhaps, she said hesitantly after a few minutes, perhaps that is the solution for your dead friend as well. You are high priest of Amun, after all. There is really no limit to how much you are entitled to spend on your own tomb, or how elaborate it should be. Why not rebury this man in our tomb? Give him a new coffin, a book of the dead, and put him in a chamber near to us. You would be willing to do that, said Conswemheb, to share your resting place with an ancient stranger? And Kere shrugged. You are right, she said. No one should be left cast out into the cold and the dark, and a broken promise is a terrible thing. Let's open up our last home to this man. That will surely be pleasing to the gods, and to the dead as well. Conswemheb embraced his wife and ran out to fetch Tambal and order him to start work on the larger site for the tomb. And so it was that, at long last, Nebusamek was released back into the sunlight and went forward to feasting and pleasure, his body resting in a brand new man-shaped coffin sent forward by freshly copied spells, the magical servants of his distant descendants looking after his every need for all eternity. The end.
Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. We've gone much further back than usual uh, this month with this story from ancient Egypt. It's much, much older than most of the stories that we've talked about on this podcast, certainly the oldest so far. So this story was found on Ostraca from the Ramesside period from ancient Egypt. Ostraca are bits of broken pottery. Um, a lot of the various pieces seem to have come from two large pottery vessels that have broken. The English translation is by W.K. Simpson. Ancient Egyptian doesn't specify vowels, so there are different versions of this name. Used, consemhab, consemheb. Uh, the god can be Amun or Amun. Uh, another of the gods can be Ra or Re. Basically, uh, the, the vowels are something that, that vowel usage varies between Egyptologists because they aren't specified in the language itself and the writing. So some of the names may not be quite what you're expecting vowel-wise. The story is very fragmentary and we only have the middle of it. So I've had to completely invent the beginning and the end. Um, as well as fiddling with the middle a bit. Um, it's really a, a fragment of a story, um, but it's the clearest example from ancient Egypt of what looks similar to a modern ghost story. And I have invented the flickering between bird and man. Um, the Ark, which is the spirit uh, represented here, um, is represented in hieroglyphs by an ibis bird. It's not represented in images at all. So that was something I invented just to give the story some flavour based on the hieroglyphics. The text we have implies that the ghost Nebusamek's original tomb uh, was destroyed by either subsidence or an earthquake. Some kind of natural event has destroyed the, the tomb. I've combined it with being plundered because that was something that happened to a lot of tombs. Most ancient Egyptian tombs were looted and plundered uh, way back, you know, before the Greek and Roman periods even. Uh, and it was very, very frequent. So I've combined that with the earthquake to thoroughly destroy his tomb. And the economic hardship, the shortage of tombs, the reuse of old coffins... And then the solution of group burials uh, are inspired by arguments put forward by Kathleen Cooney. I have added my own invention, so it's not completely following Cooney's argument, but roughly following Cooney's argument about what was going on toward the end of the New Kingdom and then into the third intermediate period that followed it. So Egyptian history is divided into Old, Middle and New Kingdoms, several intermediate periods, um, and then eventually we get into um, Hellenistic period and then Roman period. So something to bear in mind is that the famous pyramids are much, much older um, than most Egyptian sites. Um, the Great Pyramid at Giza is Old Kingdom and it was built around 2560 BCE. So that is about 4,500 years ago. Um it's one of those things that it's very easy to forget just how old the pyramids actually are. If you think about the distance between us and Alexander the Great is about 2,300 years. The distance between 
Alexander the Great and the Great Pyramid is about another 2,200 years. Um, he's about as far from the Great Pyramid as we are from him. Um, so that's one way of trying to get your head around just how old some of these Egyptian sites actually are. That's older than anything in this story. Um, I should say Egyptian dates are rather vague and they differ from source to source. Egyptologists don't agree. Obviously, the Egyptians did not use this numbering system that we use for their dates. Um, so they've had to be worked out and scholars do differ in exactly where they place the various dates. So you may read a book or an article or whatever that gives different dates um, for these things. Um, that is because there are disputes between historians so that they're all a bit they're all rough dates. But this story is from the Ramesside period, which ran roughly 1292 to 1077 BCE and covers dynasties 19 and 20. That's the, the royal dynasties. The ghost is from the Middle Kingdom. Uh, the Middle Kingdom ran roughly 2050 to 1710 BCE. So the ghost is from a period several centuries, not far off a thousand years, just under a thousand years before the story takes place. Ramesside tomb types include above-ground decorated tomb chapels, below-ground undecorated burial chambers and group burial places, as well as some pyramids and gravestones. Um, the necropolis at Thebes, which is mostly New Kingdom with some Middle Kingdom tombs, includes the Valley of the Kings, which includes the tomb of Tutankhamun, the Valley of the Queens, the Valley of the Nobles, Various workmen's tombs at the workmen's village of Deir el Medina. That's where my characters are heading off with their looted stuff. And various other mortuary temples and tombs. And there are changes over time that we can see in these practices, which is not surprising. Again, we're looking at a period of several centuries, nearly a millennium. So by the time we get to the late Ramesside period probably most people couldn't afford tomb chapels or burial chambers. Tomb chapels from this period are mostly for Deir el-Medina workmen or priests of Amun. And there is some possible evidence of reuse of older tombs from this period. And that's essentially when I've set the story. Um, in this late Ramesside period where there's economic issues, people can't afford what they could before and they're reusing old coffins. And Cooney suggests that by Dynasty 21, shortly afterwards, people were going back to the much older fashion for more secret buried tombs to avoid robbery and reuse, and that coffins then started to become seriously elaborate to compensate for the less elaborate tombs. And she suggests the story of Consuemheb may reflect anxieties around the reuse of older tombs in the late Ramesside period. We don't know if it's a late Ramesside text. It could be early. Um, rather than late Ramesside, I have decided to set the story in the late Ramesside period. In the third intermediate period, which just followed that, the high priest of Amun basically became the ruler of Egypt in the south. So these high priests are very, very powerful. And although that happened slightly later than the story's setting, um, he would already have been extremely powerful by the time that the story is set in. We can see economic differences as well in the different types of mummification. So the three different types of mummification for three different costs were described by the much later Greek historian Herodotus. We think Herodotus visited Egypt, some of it. Some of his information about ancient Egypt seems fairly accurate, some of it completely not accurate. Um, 
I'm not sure Egyptologists are too keen on Herodotus, but he does have this description of these three different types of mummification for three different costs that were at least current in his time, uh, which is the 5th century BCE, so another several centuries later. But it gives us a guideline. Uh, So the first method is the famous method involving pulling the brain out of the nostril um, and taking the organs and putting them in canopic jars and all that kind of thing. The middle option has the body injected with cedar oil to dissolve the internal organs rather than taking them out and placing them in the jars. And the third option just purges the belly. And then all of them involve embalming the body for 70 days before washing and wrapping it. So I have my characters steal canopic jars from the first and most expensive version from the older tomb um, because they can only afford the middle version and they're going to pretend that they afforded the first one. I based the tomb in the story uh, on a few different tombs. So uh, there's a description briefly of Hatshepsut's tomb, which was reconstructed, probably incorrectly, in the early 20th century. That's what uh, the, the workmen go past on their way, as well as the temple of Mentuhotep II. Uh, texts from antiquity suggest that that had an intact pyramid of some kind or possibly a mastaba rather than a classical pyramid. In antiquity, that hasn't survived. Um, so we've had to reconstruct that again from texts. And then I based uh, Nebusamek's tomb uh, on a couple of different tombs, on three different tombs. Uh, the tomb of Mekatre, Mentuhotep's chancellor at Deir el-Bari, so that's the location where the story is set. Uh, a tomb of a Middle Kingdom prince and governor called Jehuti Hetep at Deir el-Bersha in Middle Egypt. And a little bit of Tutankhamun's tomb. So Tutankhamun's a pharaoh. His tomb's much richer than any non-pharaohs would be. Um, but this is meant to be a fairly well-off elite character. And Tutankhamun's tomb is one of the only tombs that was discovered intact that hadn't been looted and plundered. So it's very helpful evidence for the sort of thing that must have been in tombs before they were robbed in antiquity. Please forgive me, by the way, any Egyptologists, if my pronunciation is off. Um, I read Greek and Latin, but my Egyptian is extremely rough. (laughs) To quote Joseph in The Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, I don't speak Egyptian very well. Um, So my pronunciation may be a little off, so I apologise if that's the case. Uh, I also described um, when they start uh, stealing the coffin, the coffin texts. Uh, these are hieroglyphic texts painted onto Middle Kingdom coffins. They originated in the pyramid texts on the walls of pyramids for royals in the Old Kingdom. In the Middle Kingdom, they get extended to commoners and painted on the coffins. And in the New Kingdom, they developed into the Papyrus Book of the Dead, Uh, which we found some examples of um, in New Kingdom tombs. So that's why in the story, um, when the ghost loses the coffin, he loses his ability to kind of live in the afterlife. He loses the magical spells that will enable him to go out in the sunlight and eat and feast and whatever else he's doing in the afterlife. Uh, And he needs a replacement in the form of a new Book of the Dead um, to follow the New Kingdom fashion when he's reburied. An Egyptian afterlife belief is is quite well known and quite famous. Um, it's worth pointing out afterlife beliefs weren't necessarily static. Um, 
the time the ghost came from, the time the story was written and set, they may have changed a little bit. Ancient Egyptian history again covers three millennia. So it's not necessarily the exact same beliefs at all times. Um, but as an absolute rough basic, <laughs> the spells are designed to enable the person to to go forth into the afterlife and not the, the the references to being cold and in the dark and hungry are from the story itself. That's what the ghost says is happening to him in the text. The spirit that appears is the Ark. Uh, this is written in hieroglyphs, as I mentioned, as a crested ibis, but not pictured, which is the, the spiritual part of a person. Uh, people also had a bar um, pictured as a human-headed bird, which represented transfer of energy through space without physical contact. Contact, So might be the, the spirit as it leaves the body or possibly in a dream. And the car, which was a spiritual double linked to the body, needing nourishment and which would join the person in death. I've also described Shabti dolls in the story. These are little wooden figurines that depict everyday life and activities. And there's been some debate about whether way, way back in the Old Kingdom or before there might have been some human sacrifice of servants to go and serve rich people in the afterlife. Um, that's debated. They may just be symbolic. But either way, that seems to be their function, that they are servants who will serve the rich person in the afterlife, making sure that they are fed and have everything they need. So, um, so that the description of the Shabtis is based on the Shabtis found in Mechatre's tomb. So including full on images of granaries and bakeries and all sorts of things, just to make sure that he has everything he needs in the afterlife. We've also found, uh, letters to the dead, um, from the Old Kingdom to the New Kingdom, though they're mostly Old Kingdom, um, and found across Egypt, suggesting some level of communication with the dead uh, was thought possible. They're usually found near tombs and they ask the dead for help with various problems. Sometimes there's a suggestion that they're worried the dead are harming them, um, that the, a dead person is somehow pissed off with them and is uh, causing them some kind of harm, causing them problems, making them ill. Uh, they're often written on potsherds, uh, like this story was, but sometimes on papyrus. And sometimes they imply that the living and the dead might meet in dreams as well. There's a few references in the letters to the dead, to the dead watching the living with malicious intent in dreams, or asking the dead to fight for them in dreams. So that was like a super quick run through of <laughs> just some of uh, Egyptian afterlife belief for funerary practice um, as background to the story. Um, I think, you know, it's probably clear that there's an awful lot to say about Egyptian afterlife belief and funerary practice. <laughs> there's an awful lot written on it. Um, the English translation of this ghost story is available in a book called The Literature of Ancient Egypt, an anthology of stories, instructions, stele, autobiographies and poetry, which is edited by William Kelly Simpson, uh, and you can order that. Uh, I also used Redland Blackland, Daily Life in Ancient Egypt by Barbara Mertz, uh, who you might know as Elizabeth Peters. Uh, she writes the Amelia Peabody series of novels as Elizabeth Peters, but she is also uh, an Egyptologist. Um, so writing under her Egyptologist name, Barbara Mertz, uh, Daily Life in Ancient Egypt, which is really useful. And then the core of my story about this economic crisis and the looting and 
the, the group burial solution, I've taken from Kathleen Cooney's article, uh, which if you have access to the Journal of the American Research Centre in Egypt through JSTOR or other means, uh, her article is called Changing Burial Practices at the End of the New Kingdom, Defensive Adaptations in Tomb Commissions, Coffin Commissions, Coffin Decoration and Mummification. Uh, that's volume 47 of the journal The American Research Centre in Egypt from 2011. So I hope you enjoyed our trip to ancient Egypt this month. Something a little bit different from the usual uh, Roman and Greek settings of most of the stories that we've covered so far. Next month, obviously, is Christmas. So we will have something with a Christmassy theme. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ClassicalJG. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. <laughs>